Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Latin America Review. And uh, today we're with uh, a special guest, uh, a former lecturer of mine back in in my youth many moons ago. Uh, we're with Dr. Pete Watt, a lecturer at, senior lecturer at the University of Sheffield, also the author of Drug War Mexico. Um, uh, a key, a key text, I think, in understanding uh, the history and you know that the current state of the neoliberalism and the state and its role in the war on drugs there in Mexico. So we're going to talk a bit about that. We're going to start with that and then uh, broaden the discussion. Pete, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and yeah, I wanted to sort of start off the discussion because. And I want to touch this topic because we've just in the past few days we've learned about the news of, of uh, Mexico's former so sort of head of public security chief Genaro Garcia Luna, who's found guilty of accepting millions of dollars in bribes from cartels. And this was someone who was a very close, was a was a confidant with numerous U.S. administrations, from the Obama administration and uh, the former administration as well in the United States, seen as a sort of key ally. Uh, for the Americans, and it turns out he's been taking vast sums of money from the cartels. And I think this, this, you know, it forces us to reflect a little bit about the role, the the relationship between the state, the United States, and the Mexican government, and uh, and the drug cartels that they claim to be fighting against in the war on drugs, especially in the uh, in in the neoliberal period in Mexico. Um, and we we have a we're seeing with the current government of President Manuel Andres Manuel López Obrador uh, a slightly different strategy, but you know I wanted to talk a bit about some of the topics that that your book covered. Um, I'm going to put the that in the chat so people can look up the book and 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 get the book if they if it's available. And yeah, where where would you pinpoint the beginning of a certain collusion between the so-called war on drugs? And the cartels themselves with the state, while the state claims to be fighting a so-called war on drugs. Where where does where does this collusion uh, begin? Where do they where do these cartels go from being sort of criminal groups into sort of genuine centers of power within Mexico with a relationship to the state? Well, a lot of, a lot of big questions there. So I'll I'll do my best um, to to uh, try and cover some of that. Yeah, I mean, the, so the, the recent news that probably a lot of your listeners will know about is the um, the trial and conviction of Genaro Garcia Luna, who was, as you say, the highest uh, official really in Mexico, uh, fighting the, the supposedly fighting the drug war um, on on behalf of the DEA and the Mexican state, um, and he, of course, wasn't the first person to uh, the first high ranking official to be found to be accepting money. Uh, on behalf of cartels, you know, so that's got quite a long history. And it, you're right, I think, to want to look at, you know, where, where the origins of that might be. So that's the first thing is that Genaro Garcia Luna, unfortunately, is far from alone in that. Um, the, the thing is that the the way that the drug war is represented in Mexico is very much as a kind of blue collar affair. It's like these, these bad guys from the rough areas of uh, states like Sinaloa, and Durango, and uh, but but it's rarely, or it's not represented enough as a white collar problem. It's really white collar crime 
uh, more than anything, I think, you know, the poor people that get involved in the drug industry do that because they're poor and there's a lack of opportunities. Um, but the the white collar uh, crime aspect is one that needs to be looked at much more uh, intensely, in my view, because, you know, the millions of dollars that someone like Garcia Luna uh, was accepting from organizations like the Sinaloa Cartel, where, where, where's that money going? Well, it's all being laundered in international banks and so on. Uh, the uh, other thing that you talked about was the extent to which the uh, flow of narcotics in Mexico, north to the United States and across to Europe is facilitated uh, by the politicians. And that goes way back. So for example, uh, you know, Mexico had a very fluid and porous border in the late 19th and early 20th century. And during the Mexican Revolution, which starts 1910, 1911, and lasts, you know, for the, at least the following decade, some people will say it lasts until uh, much, you know, another decade until the end of the 1920s when the, the, uh, the main political party, which becomes the PRI, is formed and, and takes power. But, uh, you know, even, even during the Mexican Revolution, there were um, politicians using their position of power to um, take illegal substances over the border. It was much easier, presumably, back then because you didn't have this very militarized border. And so they were using their political positions. And so long as they, were, they could be entrusted to quell the rebellions in northern Mexico, the uh, peasant rebellions, some of them led by people like Pancho Villa, so long as they could be trusted to uh, get rid of or at least quash those revolts, they could basically do what they wanted. Um, and that, so that goes way back, at least until at least 100 years, possibly more. But the, I think the when it intensifies, perhaps the most, is when the United States starts um, takes the lead in prohibition leg legislation really in the 19-teens and 20s. And then, of course, you've got the prohibition of alcohol in the United States between 1919 and 1933 as well. And so there's, there's also the flow of alcohol uh, going across the border into the United States too. Uh, and as I'm sure lots of people listening to this will understand, it's that illegality which makes the uh, the, and prohibition that makes the price of uh, illegal substances much higher because there's much more risk involved. Um, so that there's an intensification then. And then after World War II, um, the, uh, Mexico is persuaded by the U.S. government to uh, form its own version of a kind of crossover but of the FBI and the CIA, and it becomes the Dirección Federal de Seguridad, the DFS, uh, which is the, the secret police service in Mexico. And during those years of the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which uh, essentially is in power from the 1929 up until the year 2000, so 71 years, uh, there's what what is often called a Pax Mafiosa, this kind of pact between the state and organized crime to ensure some sort of stability and peace. Um, uh, but it's the state really that's in control. So the DFS is involved in that because <clears throat> they, 
<clears throat> drug traffickers or uh, criminal organizations can't control a, what, what what we call a plaza, uh, which is mean, basically means an area uh, of control uh, by uh, in, or, in order to export narcotics. You, you're not allowed to do that unless you get the permission of the DFS. Um, uh, the military pacts are made with the military and the police, and of course the local politicians and then the more senior state politicians up to the federal government. So all the stuff that's been happening recently with in relation to Garcia Luna, I mean, that's been an open secret for a while. Um, I've seen, I, you know, I years ago I saw many suggestions that he was on the take and, and it's not really surprising. Um, it should tell you something really about the relationship between the United States and Mexico um, and how seriously we can take this notion of the drug war as being a war on drugs at all. I mean, uh, if it was a war on drugs, well, um, then it's a, clearly a massive failure. Um, and I think that it's got nothing really to do with drugs at all. I think the the creation of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, when Nixon creates that in the 70s, it becomes a, a tool of leverage for American power, uh, principally in Latin America, but then elsewhere in in Asia too, in places like Afghanistan, um, but really all over the world. So in Latin America, Mexico, Central America, Colombia, uh, uh, other countries in South America like Bolivia, where you've got you know you've had the, uh, quite a, a relatively heavy presence of the DEA, and in every case, like in Colombia and in Mexico, <clears throat> there's always been this collusion between the organized crime organization the organized crime groups uh and the politicians uh that the DEA somehow doesn't know that is just not um it's just not credible to me so uh coming back to that post war period the uh state was essentially in control of the drug of narcotics trafficking through mexico all of that changes i think somewhere around the year 2000 where in fact the state is not re begins to lose control of the organizations and those organizations start to see the politicians as their employees and the police as their employees and members of the judiciary and so on as their employees so they're the ones calling the shots uh, i'm i'm not totally clear on why that happens but i think you know, the breakup of the PRI political system, which happens in the late 2000s, um, means that the the PRI isn't in control politically of many of the states uh, and many of the institutions in the states, the, uh, the municipal and, and state level that they had been before. And so there's an opportunity there for... Uh, organized crime groups to, in a way, fill that vacuum or to create new alliances with the political elite. I think that's part of it. Um, but then the other major aspect, which is kind of what the book was about uh, and what I was interested in when, when I wrote it and did the research for it, was that the neoliberal period, there's something about the neoliberal period which allows for these organizations to flourish. Um, and, you know, Mexico's 
enters this period of deregulation, of anti-trade unionism, of privatization, and quite intensely in the 1980s. And Mexico did have a, you know, some forms of social safety nets in order to protect vulnerable elements of the population. They were, you know, very lacking. I, I don't want to overplay them, but when those are removed throughout the 1980s, that means that more and more people are um, in precarious employment. Then that's exacerbated when, you know, Clinton and uh, Salinas pass NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which accelerates that whole neoliberal process and is about protecting and furthering uh, investor rights in Mexico um, at, at the same time as they militarize the border with this plan that uh, uh, Bill Clinton, the government of Bill Clinton comes up with, which is called Operation Gatekeeper, which is to keep, keep Mexicans or Central Americans from crossing the border, but allowing the free movement of uh, consumer goods heading north. Uh, so in the first years of NAFTA, um, that creates a huge problem for many Mexicans, particularly in rural areas where all kinds of agricultural subsidies or food subsidies to the poor have been, have essentially been abolished. Uh, more and more people have to leave the land in search of uh, employment they go to the urban areas in mexico they go to the Ma maquiladora belt on the, uh, the you know the, the the sort of sweatshop areas of the us mexico border or they migrate or they try and migrate to the united states something which becomes more and more dangerous but that economic instability and the exacerbation of uh inequalities economic inequalities means that criminal organizations can then capitalize on the fact that there's this uh, massive um, pool of uh, labor, desperate labor, flexible labor, as they call it, uh, to work for them, often for, you know, not, not a huge amount of money, um, but still, you know, probably earning more than they would working in the legal economy or in the informal economy. Um, so you could see that the growth of uh, drug cartels in Mexico also owes itself, in addition to the official corruption, the government corruption, um, that it also owes itself to these economic arrangements which exist um, as a result of the neoliberal economy, that might be also that might help explain why the AMLO government hasn't been able to um, really get 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 um, really control some of the violence that has been taking place in Mexico recently. Because we are in a globalized neoliberal economy, so uh, one government on its own really can't uh, regulate. Uh, the the uh, free the free what we call the free market, but the neoliberal economy in a way that might then lead to conditions which uh, allow for uh, better employment opportunities and uh, which reduce corruption. Yeah, definitely. And when we talk about the neoliberal period and its effect on the war on drugs, I think 
could we say that the the political parties as well um, that were governing throughout that period and who are today the opposition, the main opposition, that that they were gutted by this process of neo neoliberalism, and so they very easily become vehicles for interests, including the drug traffickers. So I mean, even the PRI obviously has social democratic roots. There's other other organisations as well, um, but I mean. What stands of it now? Is it still a party? Are these still political parties with an ideology? Or are these shell companies that can be very easily sort of penetrated by uh, criminal groups? Yeah, I mean, the, the PRI did have, I think, yeah, you're right, social, sort of social democratic roots uh, in the 30s and 40s. And in fact, the PRI introduces some uh, very progressive reforms throughout the 1930s that, you know, people, I think, in this part of the world, at least where I am, uh, probably don't know very much about the, you know, the, the government of Lázaro Cárdenas in the 1930s. You, you know, during the, the Mexican Revolution, there's this, uh, the Mexican Constitution of 1917 is a really quite a progressive uh, document which allows for, and in fact, guarantees all kinds of labour rights and, the you know, the right to dignified labour, the eight-hour workday, um, uh, to to you know sort of forms of you know the, the the notion that one has the right to shelter and food and potable water and stuff you know this is this is quite some time before the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights and I think Mexico in some senses is ahead of the game internationally in in that form of progressive politics and you know in the 1930s you've kind of got a, a, a form of Keynesianism before before the Bretton Woods. Um, arrangements after World War II. And that particularly happens after uh, the election of Lázaro Cárdenas to the presidency between 1934 and 1940. And he, you know, there are all kinds of reforms which come in, which mean that, for example, foreign companies, there's a quota on how much foreign companies can invest in Mexico and how much they can control the subsoil uh, riches of mineral wealth and oil and coal and so on. Uh, you know, those were some of the grievances, the fact that foreign capital controlled so much of the economy uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, and that most of the wealth of Mexico, uh, you know, like so many other countries in Latin America, it was an, a, an economy of extraction, of resource extraction. All the wealth was going to Europe and to the, to the United States. And so those were the... Uh, kind of driving forces in a way of what happens when the Mexican Revolution erupts. And then after, in the 1930s, governments like that of Lázaro Cárdenas are trying to at least redress some of those imbalances. You know, Cárdenas nationalizes uh, the oil companies um, and that's met with a, a trade embargo by the UK and the United States. Both governments are outraged and companies like Shell and what becomes British Petroleum are, of course, outraged uh, by that. But, and, and you know, there's, you know, the land reform, for example, in a, in a country like Mexico, where so much of the land was controlled by uh, the big hacienda owners and the, the very wealthy rural elites, those things make a huge, huge difference. But, and, and that system that I kind of alluded to earlier, whereby you have, um, a certain amount of economic protectionism, for example, for rural farmers and small-time farmers, that that all is um, 
those are, those programs are all reduced in the 1980s, as they are elsewhere. You know, that's really the neoliberal turn in the, in the 70s and 80s. So the that, like I say, that that produces a lot of uh, or or exacerbates inequalities. Uh, it also means that uh, a lot of the time, one of the only you know some of the most stable crops for people in like the northern triangle in Mexico. Um, are are things like opium poppies or marijuana, um, because if you can no longer get a a good suitable price for your avocados, your limes, or your tomatoes, well, you're left with a choice to either migrate, perhaps leave your land, or produce a crop for which there is always a market and probably a higher price too, and or at least a stable price. In the in the eighties, the those social democratic roots of the PRI are um, there's a there's a purge really which starts probably in the 1980s and continues right so the PRI firm becomes firmly neoliberal party and anyone to the left of you know the center or the center right uh, is either marginalized or expelled I mean one of those people is this guy Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas who's the son of Lázaro Cárdenas, this very progressive president, he's actually ex essentially he's expelled from the PRI and runs uh, independently uh, for the presidency. Uh, that's a so that program continues. Who are the kind of people who are, uh, you know, leading the PRI? They're all educated in Harvard and Princeton and Oxford. They're a set of technocrats who can be trusted to run the neoliberal economy in the service. Uh, of elite interests and invest, investor interests. So when the, the PAN, the National Action Party, comes to power, or wins the election rather, in uh, the year 2000, that's touted as a massive change. Oh, we're finally getting rid of the PRI. Things are going to change in Mexico. Uh, and unsurprisingly, um, things don't change in the way that a lot of people uh, are expecting, uh, because the PAN is... Uh, you know, if anything, more neoliberal than the PRI. Uh, so, yeah, the the ideology is that of big money, essentially. Uh, Mexico, uh, the you know, successive Mexican governments can be trusted by the neighbor in the north, by the United States, to run affairs uh, much in the interests of of big capital. Um, that changes. So the you know the pan stays in power for twelve years up until two thousand twelve, and then we have another sexennial of the PRI. But by the end of that sexennial, there's so much frustration. I think with uh, a lack of change. You know, Mexico has had for a long time a lot of very vibrant social movements. Um, and so by 2018, when you have um, this uh, other candidate, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who's formed a, a new party, Morena, um, he and that party break with that old system. And it's pretty astonishing that when the 2018 election happens, the PRI is devastated by um, the dominance of Morena in all three um, all three branches of government, 
controls almost all of the states in Mexico and the political institutions there. So, you know, that tells you a lot about popular sentiment and how people are feeling um, the fact that they, you know, they were desperate to get rid of this, this, this old system. Yeah, um, we've got a couple of uh, comments and questions in the chat. ILL State Fishing says, hope PT gains more popularity like in Brazil. And that's in reference to the Partido del Trabajo, which is a, a left-wing party that has, has some seats in Congress, sort of allied to the current government, though not part of it. Um, Red Horizon says, Cancun brings in so much money, but 80% of it goes to foreign capital. Um, and uh, what's this? Uh, will cause a great program discussion and, and analysis jibes with the history of Mexico as I've understood it. Just ordered the book, Pete Watts, uh, Drug War Mexico. So there, as well, a, I, think as a, as a, I think it's time for me to write another one. I need to do another yes, update. definitely. And I'm you could launch it on here, okay? Yeah, <laughs> it's a deal. <laughs> um, and then another one saying, How will lithium nationalization help the pueblo? So, this I think is an important issue about media representation. Uh, I want to sort of move on to a bit about, you know, especially at the moment, we, we, you'll see a lot of stories about, I think, um, Time, was it, called Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, Tyrant of the Year. Um, yeah. And you see all kinds of um, coverage to this extent. And I think a big part of it is to do with the current process of nationalizing uh, lithium. And Pete, you know, you 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 teach um, in, in, in the United Kingdom. Um, about Latin America, Latin American history, culture, in in the Hispanic studies program at, there at Sheffield. And I always think it's, you know, obviously in the UK, it's, it's different to the United States where there is a, a you know, huge number of Latinas and where it's, it's, it's much it's sort of more at the forefront of discussions. Um, and in the UK, media coverage will be dominated by, say, the BBC or The Guardian, talk, uh, focusing, say, Venezuela this, Venezuela that. Um, Andres Manuel López Obrador, Tyrant of the Year, um, and you know, what 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 spaces are you, are you, what discussions are you able to have in you know in your classrooms and things? What are what are the, some of the preconceptions you think people come into the classroom with based on the sort of limited coverage you, that, that sometimes exists in the UK about these sorts of issues? And and, and do you think people are open to the the kind of discussions that we're having here. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. The the uh, the ideas that people have are very limited. I, I used to teach in the US, and I, I remember I taught a class once. It was really interesting. This was um, sort of early two thousands, and uh, the class was sort of I would say half half Latinos. So like people who were the kids of people from Guatemala or Mexico or Costa Rica. Um, and then the other half were, I guess, what you would call Anglos. And uh, the the people of Latin American heritage were, um, even if they didn't really know some of the details, they were much more open to, um, uh, they had a much more comprehensive understanding about you know, the threats of empire and what empire really means. And I think, you know, when you're when you're the victim of empire, uh, you have a much sharper understanding 
of what that actually means than when you're in the you know the belly of the beast in the uh, as as I am here, right? Um, so that's really interesting. But at least there was some consciousness, especially among the um, the Latino community. Whereas here it's it's different. I think what's changed since then is, in particular, young people. Um, there's I I mean this is anecdotal, but I've been doing this for a while now, and I find that the students in general are are pretty open and pretty open-minded, a lot more open-minded than I think a lot of people in my generation uh, would be. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that the younger generation feel pretty disenfranchised, well, not pretty disenfranchised, they feel totally disenfranchised um, by the society at large and they're being screwed and shafted in so many different ways you know the fact that they're you know when they go to university the edu you know they're going to get into tens of thousands of pounds of debt just to get a degree uh, and there's no guarantee of uh, you know good or stable work after that um they're you know and they're they're, they're disenfranchised on the, on so many fronts the you know the climate crisis um the constant kind of war and military military industrial complex but they're also disenfranchised by the media because the media uh, don't represent them. I mean, how many young people in this country re actually read a newspaper? Um, and I'm not a young person anymore, but I don't read newspapers either because they're garbage and they're garbage right across the spectrum and they don't tell you the truth. Um, and it's, so if you want to inform yourself, you've got to look elsewhere. If you want to, um, you know, if you're a curious person and you're interested in what's happening in the world, and you you um, you're curious uh, about what's happening in the world and what's happening to other people, you you shouldn't look at the Guardian and the BBC or the Telegraph or the Times or Sky News um, because they're lying to you or they're lying by omission. Uh, and the Latin American, the Latin America coverage of all of those publications or media outlets is really cartoonish. Um, and it's, it's, I just think it's drivel. Um, you know, I was looking last week uh, out of curiosity and it, you know, I can always feel my blood pressure going up every time I look at the Guardian's uh, Latin America pages. I think you interviewed Francisco Dominguez the other day who did a, a really good job of talking about how the media representation of what's been happening in Nicaragua um, recently is just so mendacious. So, you know, people, younger people, I think, feel that the the mainstream media don't represent them, and with good reason because they don't. They represent corporate interests, and I don't care whether it's the uh, the the Times or the Telegraph or the Guardian; they're pretty much all the same, um, and that can be proven by just looking at the quality of the coverage. So you really have to look elsewhere, and so the kind of work that you're doing, for example, I think is is incredibly important is really vital because you're offering a different perspective or you know the the uh we, you know we we both know pablo navarrete who's who runs this organization called alborada here in the uk and that's also doing a really uh good job of just kind of chipping away at this propaganda that we that we we, we get you know it's just kind of incessant in relation to latin america then when i so i i kind of focus many of my classes on empire and empire in Latin America. And one of the first questions I always ask students at the beginning of the semester is, you know, depending on what the topic is, but like a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the, the coup d'etat 
uh, organized and facilitated by the CIA and the Guatemalan military and elites to overthrow the government of Arbenz uh, between 1952 and 1954. And typically, no one in the class has ever heard of that. They've never heard of that. They've never, they've never really... They might have heard of the coup in Chile in 1973, and they know something about Pinochet, but it's it's all very, you know, it's um, so it's kind of an abstraction, um, or or for example, you know, the U.S. invasion of Panama in 1989. You know, how how much do people know about that here? I'm going to tell you, it's going to be close to zero. It's like there's nothing, and uh, so this stuff's been going on for a long time. So when you're questioning, like. What's the media discourse about the nationalization of lithium in Mexico? You should always assume that whatever the content of that article is going to be is probably going to be false. It's going to be misleading. And if it's not, then that's going to be a nice surprise. You, uh, you know, I'd love to be proven wrong about that. Uh, and the, the reason it's important for me to study these and to teach uh, former uh, kind of instances of the intervention of empire, the U.S. empire in Latin America, is because you can see the same thing happening over and over and over again. So, in the case of Arbenz in Guatemala, right, Arbenz was decried as a you know a, this communist menace, and the the cancer of communism was uh, going to infect the region, and it wouldn't it wouldn't be long until. The communists cross over into the United States, and then they could get to Washington and overthrow. And you know, the United States is going to be a Soviet satellite, and all this—I mean, total, total nonsense. But you can see how that blueprint of that discourse about our bends in Guatemala was very effective, um, and it was kind of that was a, a, a forerunner to what happens uh, afterwards. I mean, incidentally. The CIA were looking at what the British had done in Iran when Mossadegh nationalizes the oil company and tries to take the Iranian economy um, back into Iranian hands on behalf of Iranians. Well, what happens? They overthrow um, Mossadegh, uh, and the CIA is looking at that and they're thinking, "Damn, that's a that's a good way of doing things." And so um, that's what happens in Guatemala, and it continues to happen. Arbenz, incidentally. You know, he he based his um, his his entire plan for Guatemala and the redistribution of wealth and nationalization. He was kind of basing it on Roosevelt's New Deal. So Roosevelt's New Deal was, you know, acceptable in the U.S. context, but in Guatemala, it's the menace and the cancer of communism. So I think when we're looking at how the media presents stuff nowadays. It's also instructive to look at how the, what they've been doing, um, you know, for you know a long time, right? At least since the late forties. But you know, I was I was teaching yesterday a class um, on the Cuban Revolution, and in order to kind of give some context, we went back to the uh, Spanish American War, right? So just before. Cuba becomes in, supposedly becomes independent from Spain and Puerto Rico and the Philippines. And we were looking at um, newspaper coverage um, and these kind of vignettes and cartoons um, from American newspapers. Many of them were owned, owned by, you know, people like Ra William Randolph Hearst 
you know, who who you know had this what what we call yellow journalism, this very sensationalist journalism. He was the, uh, the I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he he told the U.S. government. He said, you know, if you provide um, if you provide the war, I'll provide the justification for war. And that you know that as the the media become privatized and controlled by business interests, and advertising becomes the key source of revenue in the late late 19th century, um, the media can be trusted to provide the pretext and justification for all kinds of imperial interventions. So if you look at the, the way that Spain or, or and Spaniards are represented in the media at that time and compare it with the, um, and, and the representations of Cubans and Puerto Ricans, um, you've got this incredibly racist um, uh, discourse and imagery which is used to provide this justification for uh, war against Spain. We have to go in and, you know, help the poor Cubans against the the Spanish menace and and spread democracy and and freedom and so on. Yeah, you know that that model really hasn't changed. If you look at the discourse that I mentioned earlier about the Guardian's coverage of Nicaragua and the the prisoners, the two hundred prisoners who have gone to the United States. It's this very, um, you know, it's, it, it really reminds me of the white man's burden, you know, the, the, uh, that, that notion that Rudyard Kipling and the, the British had in relation to India and supposed Indian inferiority that the Britain had to conduct this civilizing mission. You know, the media um, in the United States and in Britain and Western Europe have a very uh, racist and colonial view of Latin America, and so I think really it's our job, um, our responsibility. I think the least we can do is to try and tell the truth about it, and to try and deconstruct those myths because um, you know we live in a world of lies, and you know someone's got to try and tell the truth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd go back to a couple of the comments we've got. Uh, said, uh, Ben's made the grave mistake of discussing uh, land reform. Yeah. Um, but said, I saw the BBC screeching about a new electoral reform in Mexico um, uh, and says that there aren't many outlets that give objective information on AMLO's policies. Um, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's something we're, we're trying to, to remedy with uh, whatever limited um, you know reach and, and resources available. Um and yeah, so just just before we close out, uh, Pete, I just want to thank you for for coming on as well. And I remember, you know, I, I think it was last year or, or so, I, I spoke to to a class you were hosting about yeah. Bolivia, great. um, and events here. And it seemed like the the class was very engaged. Um, like the you know pe people taking part in the discussion and were very open to, yeah. to some of the things I was talking about. And and that. Despite all of the sort of coverage and uh, propaganda, and or rather lack of uh, information, a deliberate lack of information out there in, in the British media, uh, is, is your experience that the people are people are open-minded? People are, you know, if if we're able to get the information out there, that people are receptive to it. Yeah, my experience, and and I'm I'm, I'm comparing it with, <clears throat> you know, the the trajectory of doing this for a few years. 
And I, you know, whenever I talked about this stuff initially, when I started teaching, I mean, maybe I, maybe it's just because I wasn't really good at it. I don't know, but my sense was that there would always be a bit of resistance to the things I was saying, and people would be quite suspicious, going, "Yeah, what's this guy? He's just like, why is he questioning all this stuff?" That, um, but there would be, there would be enough, there would be a, a more, there would be enough of a contingent who were open to things. Now, what I find is that I'm, I'm kind of blown away by how receptive. Uh, the younger people are to hearing something different. And I think that does go back to what I was talking about earlier, that, um, you know, there, there's just a real sense that we've we've kind of been lied to um, by, by the older generation. I, you know, I was thinking about that. I don't know if you've ever seen that interview with Julian Assange, where he's talking about the media... And he's talking about how the media cover war. And he says, you know, if, if wars can be started by lies, they can be stopped by telling the truth. Um, and he says, you know, the, the, the media caused so much damage. You know, if you think, you know, which, which, you know, all of these military interventions and wars and this constant um, uh, imperialism that we're, we're, we're all, you know, experiencing at the moment, you know, with NATO... Uh, you know, and every couple of years, it's it's something else. You know, it's like it, it used to be the war on drugs. It used to be uh, the war on terror. Um, I've forgotten a couple now, but now it's you know, it's like you know, we've got to save Ukraine at all costs, and you know, every, people people who didn't know where Crimea or Ukraine was on a map, you know, now have the little flags in their Twitter bios, even though they probably still don't know where it is. Um, but we're all supposed so that you know the, the media play this huge role in uh what's what's possible and you know if you look at like for example iraq the invasion of iraq it was the media that sold us those lies you know but 20 years earlier um in nicaragua you know there was the the there was this same lie about weapons of mass destruction it's 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 insane it's so ridiculous you're telling me that Nicaragua has weapons of mass destruction. The, that was the discourse of the Reagan government. The discourse was also that the uh, the, the the Sandinistas were going to march on Washington. You've got this tiny little country of impoverished peasants, and somehow they're going to be a threat to the greatest military and economic power the world has ever seen. Uh, you saw it, you see it in like the island of Grenada. I can't remember what year it was, but it was like um, it was in the eighties. You know, it's a, a, a tiny island of like a hundred or two hundred thousand people, and it gets this is, you know, it's subjected to this military invasion by the United States to overthrow the government. Um, so it's important for us to study these things and to talk about them openly and to question ourselves. And I think that the the role of anyone who's serious about teaching and trying to help people think for themselves. I don't want to teach people. I want I just want people to start asking questions. And so it's your role, I think, to help people unlearn all of the things they've so much of the things they've been told, because so much of it's either mendacious or uh, mendacious by omission. Um, and I think once you do that, once you start doing that, it's quite an uncomfortable road um, because you know, people in the West always like to think of themselves as the good guys, um, but in fact, the opposite is true, uh, given the historical record. But I think the younger people um, are much more open to that, um, to that, uh, 
to that to that notion and coming back to you know what Assange said he finished that interview by saying you know maybe it'd be better if the media just didn't ex you know the news media maybe it'd be better if they didn't exist at all 100% agree and uh, yeah well thank you so much Pete for for joining us today to talk about Mexico and uh, you know as we broaden the discussion as well thank you to everyone who participated uh, as well if you want to get Pete's uh, book, Drug War Mexico, if the full title's in uh, the description here. And make sure to check it out. It's a great book. And uh, if if he writes a second one, then we could do a, 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 a virtual book launch in here as well. So thank cool. you, Pete, for joining us. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Ollie. Cheers. Thank you.